to AI is human, uh, there's nothing that we develop uh, that is going to have uh, no holes or areas for improvement. And methods are like that. Um, if you think about it, uh, the idea of always being open for improvement of methods is really how we make progress in science. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Methodology Matters. I am Matt. I'm here with Brad, my uh, co-host and the scientific half of our collective brain. Brad, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, doing well, Matt. Good to see you. I, uh, I, really, I really enjoy our little talks, Brad. I hope that everyone out there does, too. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, going to be a fun one today. We're hearing more from Dr. Lahana Tabani, right? Hearing more from Dr. Lahana Tabani, exactly. Uh, and we're going to continue to talk about really the backbone of human research, which is health research methodology, or in one word, methodology. I'm shocked to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So uh, uh, why would you call methodology sort of the backbone of human research? You, you've been kind of using an analogy before we started recording, and I, th I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you can think of methods as kind of like the body, while the mm -hmm. actual conduct of a study is like the clothes that go with it or that go with the body. Mm. In other words, your answer is really only as good as the methods used. Uh, I really like that analogy. Uh, it's especially great for those of us that are vain enough to uh, spend a lot of money on clothes. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to hear some other things from uh, Dr. Devani today as well, right? Yeah, and, and and maybe even before we kind of uh, move forward and talk about some of the other um, topics that he mm -hmm. covers, um, you know, we're talking about methods, which is, again, a reminder to our listeners is a link back to this concept of certainty of evidence that we've talked about so much. Yeah, sure. right. So if the methods um, for a study are left wanting or mm. could uh, could have been improved upon then the certainty of evidence isn't going to be as high gotcha so yeah we um we get into a couple of kind of key themes um in this episode mm -hmm. probably the one we spend the most time on is pilot and feasibility studies or pilot and feasibility clinical trials right um we also talk about kind of the McMaster um, health research methods program again, mm -hmm. and kind of what sets it apart from other programs in the world. Sure. We talk about whether there are other programs actually in the world that have emulated the, the model that McMaster has set. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I think the last topic that we go that, that Lahana talks about is is the basic principles of collaboration on methods projects, or for that matter, research projects. Mm, gotcha. Interesting. Something he's quite good at, I think. <laughs> yes, he's, he's, uh, he's excellent at that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Great. So um, these pilot and feasibility studies, uh, it sounds like Dr. Tabani's on a, you know, he's uh, done a lot of research on a lot of different uh, subjects because he's a biostatistician, right? But this pilot mm -hmm. feasibility study stuff is really, um, it sounded to me like he, uh, it was more to the core of his uh, research principles. Yeah, well, I, um, I, I agree. And, and I would say it, it speaks to kind of 
he's he's been a leader in many um, ways within the, mm-hmm. the world of health research methods. But this is kind of one of his very successful kind of projects that he's led, um, and and has kind of been the prime the primary driver on, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, so he tells the story of when he first came to McMaster University in Hamilton, Mm -hmm. Ontario. Right away, he was asked to sit on a research ethics board. um, And soon thereafter, he was also asked to sit on the Canadian Institute of Health Research randomized control trial panel. So that's basically a, a national panel that judges the quality of proposals for randomized trials that are that are sent in by different academics from around the country Mm. and with these two experiences uh he he noticed that one of the biggest weaknesses in terms of the studies that were either trying to get through the research ethics board or that were Mm -hmm. trying to get funding was there just wasn't um much in terms of doing pilot studies or feasibility studies before kind of launching into a major clinical trial, a randomized trial. So um, he saw this opportunity to improve upon um, and to help um, develop resources for investigators who want to do these important studies. Yeah. Two things that he did with that is one, he, I think in 2016, along with uh, Jill Lancaster started a new journal called BMC pilot and feasibility studies. Um, Mm -hmm. The two of them are co-editors. Oh, great. And the other thing that that he was a prime primary driver on was or a prime mover on, I should say, is mm-hmm. a consort extension statement on pilot and feasibility studies. And so for our listeners who um, w- may be unfamiliar with consort, consort is kind of a an international group that sets reporting standards for the conduct of clinical trials, in particular randomized control trials. And uh, Lahana led an extension to that kind of consort statement, how to report or, or reporting standards for pilot and feasibility studies. And, and in that there's, you know, some of the work really kind of differentiates what's the difference between a pilot study and a feasibility study and where's mm. the overlap. So um, that's been a very successful methodological venture, I would say that Lahana has been a big player in. That's great. And we'll have a a few links in the show notes that are helpful if you want to do some more specific reading on uh, any of that. Really great stuff. So uh, uh, one other thing uh, before we get into the actual interview, I think, you know, we uh, uh, we love uh, Dr. Tabani's sort of approach to collaboration and and other people. I want to I want to point out he mentions this great thing called uh, Ubuntu that we should uh, I would (laughs) say is a nice little nugget towards the end of the interview. what what's the he uses a phrase, Brad? Uh, do you remember the phrase? Yeah. So as I remember, Mbutu is uh, is an African expression, um, mm-hmm. which means you are because I am, and I am because you are. That's great. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, which speaks so much to um, to good collaborations, right? When there's an actual, yeah. real respect and kindness towards um, recognizing that everyone is an important player and he talks a lot about not he doesn't talk a lot about but he touches on mm-hmm. on the idea of, of um the diversity of ideas yeah and how yeah. good collaborations have um people with diverse opinions and diverse ideas um yeah. and that's okay yeah yeah and that's okay 
That's great. Well, uh, on that note, why don't we uh, get right to it? Uh, we hope that you guys enjoyed this fantastic interview, uh, part two with Dr. Lahana Tabani. Can you talk a little bit about some work that you've been involved with um, that's been innovative? And I know that you've been involved a lot with pilot clinical trials. Um, you've worked a lot with um, the Canadian Institute of Health Research randomized control trial panel. You have lots of experience with the research ethics boards in terms of how they um, look at randomized trials. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your work in, in pilot trials? Yeah. So one of the things that happened when I came to McMaster was that um, I was fortunate enough to actually uh, be mentored by Charlie Goldsmith. Charlie Goldsmith was the member of the local research ethics board at the time, um, which we had two research ethics board in, in, in Hamilton at the time. It was St. Joseph's Research Ethics Board, and then there was a McMaster Hamilton Health Sciences Research Ethics Board. So I was based at St. Joseph's Hospital, and Charlie Goldsmith was a member of that research ethics board. Um, I came in first as an observer to see how things were happening on the board, and then a year later, I joined it formally and have been with the Research Ethics Board for more than 15 years. And as I was um, actually sitting on the board and reviewing all submissions coming through the board um, with people proposing to do pilot or feasibility trials or studies, many of them had several deficiencies that were very clear that people really were not paying attention to how to best design their studies uh, how to best conduct them. And certainly the evidence was becoming clear that even reporting of such studies was not good. Mm-hmm. Shortly after I joined the Research Ethics Board, I also joined the Canadian Institutes of Health Research panel on randomized control trials. And it was clear that as we were reviewing many of the proposals for randomized control trials, a lot of them were very weak on one big issue, which is feasibility. At the time, there was this attitude that um, funding a randomized a pilot study or a pilot randomized control trial was not good use of money. Uh, and yet, there was also emerging evidence showing that many studies were actually failing to recruit to completion because of uh, investigators being too optimistic about feasibility of the trial. Mm-hmm. So we managed to actually then encourage uh, CHR to change uh, the approach to actually funding of randomized control trials that uh, there has to be a requirement for a pilot trials to have been done to mm-hmm. show that the main study would be feasible. So as this was happening and with many studies um, doing a bad job with pilot trials at REB level and then going to Sierra CIHR um, proposing to do the main trial and realizing that they didn't have feasibility data. Things began to change a little bit, but it was obvious when you read the literature at the same time that even those that claimed to be pilot and feasibility studies were either not reported well, or if you looked at them closely, never had any objectives that would suggest that the study was actually designed as a feasibility study to inform the design of a subsequent study. Mm-hmm. So all these things really came together. We then wrote a paper, which at the time, really, we were writing that paper to try and clarify what 
pilot and feasibility studies were and what they were not. Mm-hmm. And certainly trying to clarify what seemed at the time like misconceptions and misunderstanding of what they are, what their papers are, and how they should be conducted. It was through that effort that we realized that we needed to change something. I then came together with colleagues in the UK who were also working in the same area, finding the same problems. Mm-hmm. We decided the best way to deal with this was to see whether we could change practice. We came together. Our first initiative was, could we perhaps come up with reporting guidelines for pilot and feasibility studies in general? Mm -hmm. But we immediately began to realize that it was a a difficult task. One, because we ourselves could not agree whether even pilot or feasibility studies were the same or different. So our starting point began, maybe we should clarify the concept of thinking about what the pilot study is, what a feasibility study is, when are they the same, and when are they different. So we started with a paper that really clarified the conceptual framework. We call it the definitions paper. It was published in PLUS. And in that paper, we really clarified that really there's a larger concept of feasibility, mm-hmm. which is really about things you're unsure about regarding the conduct of the main study. and. Uh, You could actually be unsure about whether the intervention would be implemented. You could be uncertain as to whether you'll be able to evaluate the outcomes, whether you'll be able to recruit individuals, randomize them, and so on. Mm -hmm. And a pilot study would be a miniature version of the main study where you're trying to see whether you could conduct the main study as you propose it. But a feasibility study doesn't have to have the same design as the main study. Mm-hmm. So there's a wider concept of feasibility, and then within that, there's other smaller version of a pilot. So we started by really changing that. Um, so that was published in Plus One, um, is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so um, we'll put that in the show notes for our listeners. Um, and and your other paper that I think was published in BMC Pilot Trials, is uh, is that the name of the journal? That's correct. Uh, And I'll give a bit of history about that journal as well. So we then decided uh, in order for us to at least start the direction of change in the practice, we have to at least come up with guidance about how then would people would report such studies. Mm -hmm. Having defined what a pilot is and what a feasibility study is, and when they're the same and when they're different, then we started with the concert extension to pilot trials. So the first uh, concert extension to pilot trials was published in BMJ and the general pilot and feasibility studies. Mm-hmm. But I have to say a year before this, uh, one of the discussions that took place was with Biomed Central as a publisher that um, we are having feedback from the stakeholders that lots of people really, part of why they were not doing a good job with pilot studies or feasibility studies is because they have nowhere to publish them. Mm-hmm. So we then started talking with uh, Biomed Central to see whether we could create a general uh, pilot and feasibility studies to provide a forum for people to publish their studies so that the place to publish them is not used as an excuse for people not to do a good job. Mm-hmm. So we then launched the journal uh, in, I think it was 2016 when we launched the journal. And shortly after we launched the journal, we published the concert extension to pilot trials um, in both BMJ and the new journal. 
That's wonderful. And as I understand it, Dr. Tabani Lahana, you are the editor in chief of that of that journal currently. Yes, I'm currently the co-editor in chief of the journal with Jill Lancaster, one of the colleagues with whom we've been working on really trying to change the practice in pilot and feasibility studies, and many of our other colleagues from the UK who were part of this team uh, are the board members uh, of the general. Mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful example, really, of uh, someone from McMaster really seeing issues with methodology and opportunities to improve research methodology and, and eventually kind of leading BMC into actually creating a new journal that's specific to pilot studies. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I wonder if you have any comments on, you know, so going back to this nutrition example, given that a lot of our readers are nutrition or listeners are nutrition oriented, any suggestions about, so there's 23 randomized trials on low carb di uh, diets for diabetes remission. Um, is there still room to do feasibility studies or pilot studies, or should we be launching into a two-year trial? Well, one of the things one we would look into is really to see whether, if you look at the methods and the design of these trials, are there any of them that seem to have planned certain things that we're not able to achieve for whatever reason? As an example, suppose if we find of the 23 trials, a certain percent of them had actually planned to recruit a certain number of participants and yet ended up falling short. We then know that perhaps there were issues about feasibility of recruitment that were missed out. Mm -hmm. If they were, had planned to implement certain aspects of uh, nutritional interventions that didn't turn out, perhaps issues of feasibility of implementation were missed out. Mm -hmm. If there were some of them which uh, could not uh, implement certain outcomes or evaluate all the outcomes as originally planned, perhaps issues about evaluation of outcomes had not been assessed with certainty before the main trial was done. That's where the, we actually see perhaps doing feasibility could actually be a good start. Mm -hmm. However, if it's an issue of uh, trials really uh, being implemented as originally planned, it's just that the methods were not good then it's for us to then improve those methods for subsequent trials in order to close the gaps on deficiencies. And But even improving the methods, like if, if there was a new trial and, and we really wanted to see if we could reliably and validly um, collect information on the, on the quality of calories consumed by participants in, in the different groups, would it not make sense to do a pilot study? Um, or, would it, or would you call it feasibility? Like could you do a small study of 40 participants, 20 in each group, to see how well you can collect this data? Of course. If we actually using a method that we've never actually used before, and we don't even know whether we can actually use it reliably and perhaps uh, use it successfully, this would be an area where doing a feasibility study or a pilot trial to assess whether we can do that successfully as a good starting point. And and then and that really sets the stage for funding too, right? Because if you can prove uh, feasibility in a small sample, then um, you've not only worked out your methods and developed your team and primed them, you also can bring evidence to your funders that hey, we can do this. It took us one year to get forty patients and follow them and get um, good data. Let's say on on the quality of caloric intake. 
So um, good. So moving on. So we talked about large, simple trials. We've obviously just talked about pilot clinical trials. We talked a little bit about Cochrane risk of bias assessment um, and how it all started with the HADAD scale. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Where, in your mind, Lahana, where are we in terms of the um, the methods for looking at the quality of trials and or cohort studies? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, to be honest, one of the uh, nice, exciting things about McMaster is that every time we have trainees come and join our program, they often challenge many of the things we have done in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you a very good example of uh, students that have continued to come into our program and challenge some of our previous work. Uh, you probably know Gordon, um, and we've all worked with him. He's spent a lot of time with many of his previous students working on evaluation of the credibility of subgroups mm-hmm. in trials, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I would say probably so far we've had at least three or four iterations of evaluation of credibility of uh, subgroup findings. And the latest was actually um, led by one of his trainees uh, that led to the Iceman tool. Mm -hmm. And the Iceman tool was recently published and is really intended to evaluate the credibility of uh, subgroup analysis in trials or systematic reviews of trials. So I think really uh, improvements in how we appraise and evaluate methodology of randomized controlled trials, I couldn't say it's uh, work completed. It continues to be work in progress. And that's generally the essence of research because um, whatever we do in research will always fall short of perfection and others coming will always build on it. So even assessing uh, issues of bias uh, in trials, I, I, I I can only imagine that we're yet to have somebody else would actually come and improve what we've been able to do to date. Well, you know, this really speaks to this ethos um, of the kind of the faculty and the students at McMaster about um, continual improvement. So in the world of nutrition, there's big battles, you know, there's big nutrition debates around fat and meat and et cetera. And a lot of the debate seems to center around, well, the nutrition world created their own um, tool to look at the quality of studies. And according to that tool, the quality is moderate to high. But according to um, grade tools or Cochrane risk of bias tools, the quality tends to be lower. And what is interesting to me is when you look at the work that's been done in nutrition, it's based on one or two studies. In fact, I can't think of an example where there's two studies where they did methodological work to develop a tool to look at the quality of, of, of evidence or the, or the quality of studies that go into a systematic review or a guideline. Um, by contrast, you have the grade working group that, as I mentioned earlier, has published over 100 different papers in terms of providing guidance to the world. Um, you just gave an example of a number of iterations around looking at the quality and credibility of, of subgroup analyses. It's, um, I think that that's actually really interesting to reflect on as a listener in terms of the value system, if you will, of methodologists maybe versus um, some that are more traditional. Yeah. 
Well, part of it is the culture at McMaster where um, everybody comes in with an attitude that you're going to give it your best, but um, it's not going to be perfect. It will have limitations simply because uh, to A is human, uh, there's nothing that we develop uh, that is going to have uh, no holes or areas for improvement. And methods are like that. Um, if you think about it, uh, the idea of always being open for improvement of methods is really how we make progress in science. Mm -hmm. um, and McMaster has instilled this uh, in all faculty. That's why even if we think um, we've managed to do something, every time we have a new student who is interested in it, they tend to actually surprise us with coming much better improvements than we had actually envisioned before. So I would say that's one of the wonderful qualities of the program that uh, students come in, they challenge the status quo. They challenge many of the things we've done before. And we welcome it because um, we've seen how that kind of openness to criticism, openness to critical appraisal of previous work can lead to uh, substantial improvements uh, in methods. And really the foundations of that are like a, a very clear research question, as, as we talked a bit about um, high quality systematic review, for example, or maybe if there's a bunch of systematic reviews, an overview of systematic reviews to really understand the landscape. And that really kind of <clears throat> sets the stage, if you will. So with all of this, um, maybe this is... Um, uh, let me ask you, uh, as we kind of come to to a close, Lohana, are you aware, so you've got um, a lot of international connections, are you aware of other graduate programs around the world or somewhere in the world that have a similar kind of um, value or, or ethos to them? Wh who's McMaster's competitor, if any? Well, um, I mean, the the landscape for graduate education it has changed tremendously from the 70, um, the 60s when the DME program, when it was called at the time, was developed. So there are other programs of uh, masters or PhD in clinical epidemiology around the world. Um, I know of many that were started by some of the people who had been at McMaster before, or at least have uh, incorporated some of the aspects um, of the McMaster way of thinking simply because uh, many of the people who were also involved had been at McMaster. But I think we continue to be uniquely different in that many of the foundational principles that uh, really made the program attractive remain core even today. Uh, Problem-based learning remains still part of uh, the McMaster culture. Uh, where for us, problem-based learning is really about experiential learning, where the problems that the students face in clinical practice really become part of guiding the development of methods. And I'll, and I'll just add to that, and most of the courses that I've been in at McMaster or have, have helped taught uh, or teach, they all are, there's a paper due at the end yes. that um, is expected to be almost at the level of publication. 
So, um, so either a paper for publication or a grant that's ready for submission, or at least almost ready. Um, that's a part of that's kind of baked into the bread um, with the coursework. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, it is, and uh, and that still remains uniquely different. Uh, many programs students tend to approach evaluation as just to fulfill the requirement. While many of our trainees are trained to actually use evaluation process as an opportunity to advance something that's going to lead uh, to either a publication or uh, a proposal that can be submitted for uh, funding to a granting agency. Mm-hmm. So, and that's uniquely different from what you'll see in other programs. Uh, students would actually do your project because they just want to fulfill the requirement of doing the project while our students really adopt an attitude that they are going to address a question for which there is no answer uh, with the goal of actually taking that a step further towards a publication. And if it's a proposal for a study, it will be a proposal for a real study, uh, not a hypothetical study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, Lohana, so I just want to ask you one last question. You mentioned that you play in a lot of people's backyards. Um, you're you're a wonderful collaborator. You work with so many people across departments and divisions at McMaster, and, and for for that matter, around the world. Um, in terms of collaborations, can you share with the listener kind of the basic principles to collaboration from your experience? Thank you, thank you, Brad. I mean. Some of these ideas, really, I learned through um, uh, observing some of my mentors um, and, of course, talking to some of them. Um, you know, the principles of working well with others, um, you know, they're not really very hard to follow. Um, I mean, what has really led to a lot of uh, the many successes I've had working with other colleagues has really been based on very simple fundamental principles. One is um, what I call the number one principles. Uh, in Africa, we call this Ubuntu. Ubuntu means you are because I am. I am because you are. And it's a very simple principle of really always thinking about um, what's best for you should be best for your colleagues at the same time and uh, doing unto others the way you would like them to do unto you. Uh, It's a very fundamental golden rule. But for us, really, uh, you always think about a win-win situation. If you're thinking that you're going to win something out of the collaboration, think about how your colleagues are also going to get something out of it. And uh, always protecting uh, others who need to be protected in a collaboration. So that's a fundamental principle for me. Mm -hmm. I'm always conscious that I am what I am as a collaborator because of the collaborators around me. The second thing, which is what has really uh, been very helpful, is something that Dave Sackett has also instilled as part of really the culture of collaborations at McMaster is mentorship. Mm -hmm. You know, I have taken mentorship very, very seriously, uh, that for whom much is given, much is expected. And I often try to remind everyone that we all have an obligation that when we are working together, we find a way to help each other. And certainly we find a way to dedicate our efforts to helping the junior ones um, or junior collaborators, including our trainees. So mentorship really becomes a major, major part of it. 
The last thing, which is also something that came from advice from Dave Sackett, is time management. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how uh, managing your time well can actually lead to successful collaborations because uh, certainly a lot of us, we know that we end up getting into trouble or disappointing others because of poor management of time. And certainly I've taken you know, time to try and improve my own time management skills. And with time, improvement in time management skills, you quickly realize that you need to improve something else to be good at it. You know, setting goals, uh, managing conflicts. Uh, so many of the soft skills, I think it's essential to pay attention to them because they can only help in your efforts to collaborate successfully with others. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, I would say, uh, you know, improving your ability as a leader. We all are leaders um, in in our own way. And certainly there's a lot of leadership skills that are required in any successful uh, collaborations. And it's amazing how the key skills in leadership are not really hard to understand, just listening to other people, realizing that really diversity is part of a success strategy in a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I often uh, tell people that, you know, the success of our collaboration is often in many cases based on the diversity of ideas. Mm-hmm. It's okay when we can't have a consensus because that means we have reasons to worry about, you know, why one approach might be better than another approach and under what settings they might actually work uh, towards the same goal and so on. So diversity and understanding and appreciating it mm-hmm. is part of what really leads to better collaborations. There's a lot more I could mention, but these really are the core fundamental principles that have served me well. I have seen them serve other people well, mm-hmm. and that's how we adopt it. Wonderful. Um, a wealth of knowledge. Thanks very much, Lohana. I think our listeners will have a lot to um, reflect upon uh, as they listen through this material. And I wanted to thank you again for um, your graciousness, your time, and your ongoing collaborations. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com. Or you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Dabani and his work, you can find links to his faculty profile in a number of his published articles, including those on pilot and feasibility studies, in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition.